Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of the In Lockdown With podcast with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. My guest on this week's episode is playwright John Bay. Hi John, how's it going? Long time no see. Yeah, it's great. It's great to actually be able to see your face. Obviously, this is audio that this will be going out, so listeners aren't quite getting the full experience, but we're having... (laughs) HD. I am, I definitely. And I'm kind of, what's this last year been like for you in terms of being in lockdown? Um, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer because it's got so many. Obviously, it's been like such an all encompassing thing and uh, has affected so many different parts of my life. Uh, and everybody's life, you know, not just mine. Mm. Um, so I found I found the beginning way easier than I found fa- I found like more recent times. Yeah. And I've I've found the whole opening up idea kind of a bit spooky and a bit scary. Yeah. And I I'm trying to remind myself not to be too anxious and mm. to to you know. Everything's everything's got to kind of get back to some kind of normal sooner sooner rather than later. So, um, uh, oh well, yeah. as soon as it's safe, really, I say sooner rather than later. I don't believe that. No, uh, <laughs> just as soon as it's as safe as we can make it. I think certain people are pushing that too far. At the moment. I think we're locking quicker, especially in England. I mean, in Wales we're doing slightly better, but in England. Um, oh yeah, England, uh, you know, they're just balls to the wall. They just, they just want to go for it. Uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but like in terms of being creative during lockdown and writing, have you found that easier or more difficult? Um, a mixed bag. The when we went into lockdown, I had loads of projects and ideas and things that I wanted to do and work on and wanted more time really so in a strange way it was a bit of a gift but what I found after that was generating new ideas and Mm. finding any kind of um, uh, what's the word like resilience when every single day is the same yeah uh, that I found really really tough Um, and I think my writing like I try, I try and write something every day, even if it's just a couple of lines in a notebook, you know. And uh, just the writing that I have been doing has gotten more and more depressing. Um, like 
necessarily the scripts that I've been working on, but the the sort of behind the scenes writing, right. if you can call it that. Yeah. So, yeah, a mixed bag. I'm finding my rhythm a bit more now. Um, mm. I feel like in the last month or so, I've started really finding the rhythm that I had before lockdown, and even yes. actually a slightly better one. I've, t- I've taken a lot of time to reflect. So, um, yeah, uh, uh, a mixed bag, but not uh, not overall negative either. That's good to hear. I think, yeah, with everything that's going on, it's difficult to think about anything else. And if you're writing something, you know, are you writing something under the conditions of it being pre-COVID? You know, do you have to take that into account? It can be a bit of a... It would be interesting how we emerge out of this and what theatre is going to look like. Yeah, it's... It's been really interesting that, like, even in my own writing that was started before COVID, there's, like, these aberrant elements that have started coming in that are coming from COVID, mm. like uh, ideas of infection and ideas of uh, <laughs> virality and stuff in that kind of horrible a COVID-y way, they've sort of yeah. been leeching into my into the work that was never even related to COVID. Um, so it's, it's been a bit like, uh, it's, been a, it's been an interesting experience and um, I think you're right, who knows? Who knows what it's going to look like on the other side of things. <laughs> so like the first proper question is the way I start all of these podcasts. So I'm going to ask you, how did you first get interested in theatre? Um, so I didn't grow up going to theatre, um, I'm from Porthcawl, so uh, we're a small town, we have got a theatre but it's mm. like a, you know, it's a, it's a receiving house for things like uh, stage shows and things like that, there was never any kind of, uh, you know, it was very, we had a panto and that was probably the only piece of new writing that would happen any year um, right. and there was never any Shakespeare there was never any of the classic things you anticipate from a from a theatre it so seems I, very I, similar to my experience in Patalbert yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah exactly the, the Princess of Wales right That's yeah a, Princess of Wales yeah it's, um, with the Grand Pavilion here it's the, it's the same sort of thing so and neither of my parents have any interest. We're a pretty working class family, and uh, they they weren't at all interested. I've got no family connections, or you know, even remote interest in it. So for me, theatre aimed through my love of English. Right. And uh, I I had a really good drama teacher in year nine, and. She, she joined the school I, went, I was in the comp and uh, she, she joined the school and they did something called uh, the Living Playhouse Festival right. so they um, it, like every English class had to learn how to write a play and then there was like some competition and if your play was any half good then you got to put it on with the drama classes and um, I wrote this play with a couple of the boys in my class um, called Fields of Gold. No, Fields of Barley. Um, 
and uh, it was this ridiculous farce about uh, a man who wants to marry multiple women and how he tricks them into marrying him and stuff uh, and then I sort of dropped it and I, I didn't really have like the curriculum at the time this is like what the early 2000s yeah. we, we weren't really doing a lot of drama we did um, we did do for GCSE we did do a Shakespeare and uh, I did a few from the bridge as well mm. uh, and then I did English A level and my teacher in year 13 mentioned I had to do a comparative essay about King Lear and oh god <laughs> my, my teacher talked about uh, why don't I look at 90s drama and so I found the works of Sarah Kane and to be honest I was drawn to her because of the picture on the front of her collective plays and for no reason other than that <laughs> and I read it and was I read the whole collection wow. in the space of about a week and uh over and over and over I absolutely loved it and thought this is this mm. is like the, the most amazing thing I've ever experienced what is going on was it like you didn't I, really realise that theatre could be like that I had no idea Kieran I had no idea that you could write like violence or you could talk about things on stage and uh that was like, that was something that appealed to me on this really, really deep level. Um, and that you could use theatre for a kind of, a, like a philosophical exploration of, of life itself. And I thought, uh, like, whoa. So that was, that was the first time I ever read a play and thought that was really cool. And I ended up going to Bristol Uni um, uh, I did English and philosophy there, and I, I went to Bristol because Sarah Kane went to Bristol. Um, did you have the mindset then of, I want a career in theatre, I want to be a playwright? To be honest, I didn't know you could have a career at that point. Um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. The only thing that I knew that I wanted to do was write. Um, to be, I, I thought I was going to be a poet. Right. I really did think I was going to be a poet. Um, if you read any of my poetry, especially from back then, it's so bad. And it has not improved in the slightest. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I've always written. I've all, like, even from a, a young age, I've always written. Yeah. Um, some of my earliest memories are just writing little things, but it was always poetry. I, always, I, like, mm. I like to think that I sort of translated how I was feeling about like, the world and my life and um, particularly growing up gay in a Christian household right. um, that, that was quite um, something that came out a lot in the like, little bits of writing that I was doing um, and it was, only, it was only at university when uh, I drunkenly agreed to direct a, a version of Crave by Sarah Kane right. um, for, one of the, for one of the societies um, that I ended up returning to actually writing drama um, because it's such an intense play and then um, uh, Russia had just invaded Crimea it was right. the same week yeah. and um, I wrote a play uh, 
just to sort of process my feelings. Well, I just wrote and it ended up looking like a play. That's probably more accurate. Um, and I sent it around and people liked it and it ended up getting put on and that was it then. It was like, it was like crack. It was addicted. Yeah. So, and, you know. and what was your experience at uni like? You were studying English and philosophy. Um, but I sense from reading, you know, your CVs, do research for this podcast, that your involvement in the Drama Society at Bristol was one of your highlights of your time at university. Would that be right? Yeah, yeah, you're, de- you're, you're on the money there. Um, I ended up doing a joint honours degree because I, uh, as I alluded to, like, I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do and all I knew was that I really liked um, making stuff in the form of written word and I really liked philosophy and I really liked the theatre and the experience of the theatre, um, even with the very little that I'd actually seen. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'm one of those writers who came to writing through reading and not through seeing. Because it was really expensive. It was really, yeah. it was really expensive. And it still is. Still yeah, I, I think it's a distance and I didn't have a car. And it was only when I went to Bristol and I started writing for the student newspaper that I actually started seeing shows because I could get um, press tickets so I could go for free. Um, but I, I love my courses um, it, in terms of like the departments, the English department was very focused on publishing novels um, and the philosophy department was a very analytical philosophy department it was very very like uh, philosophy of physics, philosophy of maths and that wasn't necessarily my gig um, right. but I, st- I still enjoyed what I learned but uh, the Bristol has such a rich drama history. Um, the department is really excellent and I managed to take the unit Contemporary British Theatre there in my final year. But uh, I got involved with uh, Spotlights. So there were, there were a number of different drama societies and I won't bore you with the uh, okay. details. But, um, uh, Spotlights was the one that primarily did like the new writing and they had a bit of a reputation for... for the the sort of more experimental stuff and uh i ended up my that first play that i directed was with spotlights and the first play that i wrote lines that went on uh was with spotlights and i ended up doing a ridiculous amount of work with them um I think if you include like random little throwaway pieces and stuff like that, I think by the end Spotlights did something like twelve of my pieces. Wow. So I was like, I just was writing, and uh, you know. Did you think this is an opportunity to experiment, to put things on, to see what works in front of an audience, what doesn't work in front of an audience? Yeah. And um, they were very, like, as a society, I was a board member in third year. I ran the, um, the they had a, something called the Bristol Playwrights Collective, which was like their 
literary department almost. <laughs> and I ran that in in third year, um, and they were they were super, always super gracious with me. You could just do whatever the hell you wanted, and see how it how it went. And I put on some weird stuff, um, like really strange and and. Even now, I think about it. I think, God, what the hell was I up to? I just didn't know what I was doing, yeah. but that was the that was the fun of it. Like, but that's that's I what you need about social life. But <laughs> that's what you need about, isn't it? It's about trying things out and and get if you're right at knowing what you like, what you enjoy creating. Yeah, it's a chance yeah. to experiment and kind of. After uni, after you graduated, what were the challenges for you in terms of breaking into the industry? The biggest one for me personally was that I I really struggle understanding the, like the politics, the everyday politics of stuff, and I got like. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a very anxious person um, and that's a journey in itself and it, it, it plays havoc with all sorts of different parts of my life and one of, the, one of the really big ones is that I just don't know how to approach people, um, particularly people in positions of power in institutions. I find I'm either overly friendly and put far too much like friendship weight on stuff or I'm completely cold and I I just don't know what to do so I've relied quite heavily on other people being able to guide me through that um, and that that in the beginning in particular was hard as well as money um, mm. I really wanted to write in Wales I really believe in the idea of yeah. Welsh writing being distinct from British writing um, and I know a lot about, you know, I, I've done a hell of a lot of research on Welsh writing and I'm really into it. And um, uh, I, our, we, don't have, we don't really have much of a, of a history in the same way as, you know, quote unquote British writing does, or even English writing, if you could even use that term. Um, particularly in English, it's, you know, obviously uh, stories are slightly different in Welsh but um, I, I really believe in that in that idea and in that journey but you know to be honest what if I wanted to have advanced my career quicker I probably should have gone to London yeah. but I, I didn't want to and uh, the, that, that was a hurdle the problem in Wales I think we've had the announcement this week um, of the new literary department that's opening in the chairman, which is great news. We're recording this podcast yeah. in the middle of July. Um, but the truth is that there should have been a literary department in the chairman long before this week. And there should oh. be one in Theatre Cloyd. And as a new writer, I don't know if you feel the same. I don't know where to send stuff to get it read, to get it developed. Where is the place yeah. for new writers to go in Wales? Yeah, it's. I think you're right, and um, we. 
It's interesting because we do a lot of work for our audiences, whatever that really means, and I have a, I have a lot of feelings about that and a lot of complicated, nuanced thoughts, maybe, he says, hopefully. Um, but we've really neglected our literary chops, yeah. and uh, I think it is to our detriment in some respect, and I'm glad, you know, I'm really glad to see that that is now being reversed and um, I interviewed for that literary yeah. manager job, and uh, uh, I, you know, obviously I didn't get it, but mm-hmm. I'm very glad to have not got it in a, in a strange sort of way. One, I think Bramman is exceptional. Completely agree. Yeah. Such a such a good reader and such a good voice. Um, and and, has, and and you know to have Alice working with her, one of the best up. Like, yeah. I, I'm reluctant to use the phrase up and coming, but one of the best emerging directors that we have in Wales. I think those two as a partnership are going yeah, to be it's phenomenal. Gonna be great. It's going to be great. And I hope that the Sherman have, you know, I, I hope that they have the ability to make the impact that they want to make. Because mm. I know that buildings are ships and ships are hard to steer sometimes. And... Uh, I hope that uh, you know everybody has competing ideas for what they want to happen next in Wales, and I I really think that the land is is fertile. I think that mm. I really believe that the talent is here. I think the talent's always been here. It's just that we've been neglecting it and sending it elsewhere. It's like you know I've been I've been trying my hand at writing properly, you know, properly big plays since I was about nineteen. Just yeah. seven years ago now, and I've never been produced in Wales. Like never, never officially. I've not had any kind of professional yeah. run in Wales, um, and that's hard. That's hard going because I, you know, in England my success is totally different. Yeah. But it it just hasn't translated over the border, whereas you know we see a lot of names quite regularly, and. Yeah. Maybe there's something to be said about that. Is it linguistic as well, do you think? Do you think, mm. you know, I kind of don't know where I'm going with this, but you know, in the Welsh language, there seems to be a lot of new writing. How, it did again need to do more in terms of diversity. I've said this many times um, yeah. on the podcast. You know, they work the way they support more diverse writers. But what they've done for new writing over the last few years is much more, I think, than, for example, National Theatre Wales. Do you think there's a difference between the both languages in terms of producing new work by new writers? So it's a, I think it's a really important question that we have to ask ourselves. And part of me wonders, you know, my, my Welsh is okay, I would say, um, as a second language speaker. And um, I don't know whether I would, I don't, I don't know whether I would feel comfortable saying that there's um, some kind of intrinsic linguistic divide between Welsh writers writing in Welsh and Welsh writers writing in English. But I would say that I feel like in Wales, right now, 
and this is one of the things that I'm going to look at in the future as well. Um, I'm curious as to whether there is a theatrical linguistics, whether there's something okay. that's, that is actually setting us apart or whether it's not, um, and how that relates to writing in Welsh or in English. And uh, I, 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 I don't know, but I think that the, I think that you're touching on something that feels very prescient. And I think a lot of writers, particularly my generation of writers, um, yeah. the people who have been permanently stuck in merging for the last God knows how long. Tell me about it, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, I know from conversations that I've had that we all kind of feel the same, that, mm. that there, there seems to be a shift in that Welsh writers now want, we want a new theatricality. We don't want to write plays like English plays. Mm. We don't want to write well-formed plays. We want to write plays that adequately resp respond to who we are culturally and socioeconomically and the things that are currently happening in our world and that that necessitates a new theatricality. Uh, it's one of the things that I've been looking at in my own playwriting is like, what does that look like? Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know whether you can tell when you're in the middle of it, but, um, you know, it's an interesting thing to find yeah, out. Yeah, do, do we fall into these English conventions? too easily because that's what we know that's what we've seen so and it's what we're taught yes and it's what we're taught it's, yeah and and it comes top down i think uh, i have a I, I have a real issue with theater generally particularly in britain because i think that the theater really thinks that it has something special and unique and almost holy mm. and that the people who don't engage with the theater are somehow heathens or ruffians or um, they're like savages and I it, there's this gross thing about it that I see yeah. in a lot of the way that we discuss the theatre in the way that institutions work with their outreach programmes when really theatre is nothing like that, yeah. theatre doesn't have anything special and I think if you take the way that I work and the way that my brain works is that theatre is inherently an impotent art form. You're not going to change the world yeah. by writing a play. And instead of that being like a nihilistic statement, I think that it should be seen as something really freeing. Mm. And that people will respond to that because they know that you're not trying to bullshit them. And, and it relieves And it relieves that pressure from you as the writer and it allows you to express yourself in, in a much better way, I think. The way you put that yeah. is fantastic. Yeah, I agree. I want to talk about your process next. Okay. What is your writing process? And does it change depending on what you're working on? Do you have a set process that you use? Um, I think my process it's quite intense. I think um, some people like to write little bits a day. Some people like games and stuff like that. Um, that isn't that isn't me. Um, I 
I see theatre as a kind of philosophical exercise. I see it as a kind of way of inventing new ways of thinking, um, or at least an attempt to. So I do, for me, my process always starts with an idea, some, a question, something that I want to interrogate, something that I don't understand. And so I, I go from there and I, as I, I think about like the, I can't remember who told me this analogy or whether it was something that just came to my mind one day, but I think about a vehicle and a passenger. Um, in, in a car crash, the most important thing is the passenger, it's not the vehicle. Yeah. So I put far more into the passenger and the passenger for me is the question, what, what is it that you're trying to explore? And I purposefully look to question my audiences. I'm not interested in giving them answers. I'm interested in mm. promoting new ways of thinking and, and trying to provoke new ways of being or becoming in the world. And um, so I start from that and then usually something will catch my eye, like some kind of a weird character that I cross on the street or a story will pop into mind, I think, oh, that's quite fun. Um, I take a lot of inspiration from natural history. Um, I've written about bird hides and conservationism. I've written about um, slate strikes. And uh, a lot lot of my plays are like in landscapes, but not not in that kind of site-specific way. So, and then it's just a case of like writing the damn thing, you know? Um, are, are you um, writing plans or do you just kind of start writing dialogue? Start on paper? Um, a, a mix of the two, somewhere in between. I'd, I'd like to know like the vague goalposts of what I want. I, I write by feeling more than I do by plot, and I right. want people to feel something. So I usually go, okay, at this point I want it to feel like this, and at that point I want it to feel like that. And so I kind of have a rough structure in my head, and then I go about just trying to fill in the scenes where I can. So I, I never, I will never try and write something from start to finish. I will never do that. I'll just like write whatever feels like I can write at the time. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and then it's a, my redrafting process is a lot of like, trying to relate it back to the question at hand. Okay, what is this play actually questioning? What is it making me think about? And is that what I want it to, to mm. do? And if it's not, how can I get it to do that? So I, I uh, think yeah. it's interesting you talk about redrafting process because that isn't something I've developed yet. I think, you know, um, second drafts, I think, are the most difficult things to do. Like you have this first draft and then you have so many questions that arise from that first draft. It's almost like starting from scratch again. Yeah. So it's interesting to develop a process to deal with that second draft. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to get myself into the habit of, okay, I know my first draft is going to be really rough. Uh, I mean, my first draft's... Uh, don't look like first drafts because 
what I consider a first draft is not a first draft, you know? And sometimes I'll be, sometimes I would have written that play about six or seven times, or like just on my own, and it yeah. will look uh, totally different. I do a lot of notes as well, um, and that really helps for redrafting, is that you, you in the process of writing your first full script, you take a load of notes about it as you're going along, and always keeping that question at hand in your mind. Okay, what am I actually trying to ask? What question am I trying to pose to my audience? Um, and am I doing it or am I not? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so you've seen the Kevin Elliott Award for playwriting in 2017, 18. So what was the piece that you received that for and how much of a platform was it for you? Um, so I sent in uh, a show, it's actually the show that I wrote for the Sherman Theatre when I was on the first round of the New Welsh Playwrights Programme that they did uh, yeah. in 2016. So. I wrote a play called Marta. Um, it isn't very good, I don't think, and uh, it wasn't finished. But for that, um, that award was like a, a, an interesting one. It was run by the uh, Bristol Theatre Collection, which is a museum of theatrical artifacts. And okay. the, uh, Kevin Ayer went to Bristol and uh, when he passed away, his estate set up this award, um, which was uh, presented to writers of promise uh, in, in any medium, really. I won mine for playwriting, um, and you could, you then spent the year, I think it was a year, I'm trying to remember now, good God. Yeah, it was a year. Um, so you got some prize money in that, and you spent the year writing something else, and yeah. you would use that, uh, you would use the archive, the Kevin Elliott archive at the theatre collection for um, that kind of work and oh, it, was, it was great. Um, it's a pretty small time award I guess, um, but working alongside the women who run the collection who were such incredible scholars and um, getting to read all of Kevin's notes and all of his personal effects mm. were there, and um, oh wow, uh, yeah, I I ended up writing uh, a play called Morning, like of the Rising Sun Morning, um, which then turned into a play called Strays, um, and uh, I wrote that with the next round of the New New Welsh Playwrights Program at the Sherman. And that play is decidedly better. So um, yeah, it, it was a it was a relatively small platform, but it was uh, it was a really great opportunity, and it was for, for somebody who was relatively early on in their career. Yeah. It was a huge thing for me to have that and um, and to feel like uh, you know I've done something substantial. You know, it's really nice when my guests do my links for me, because now we're going to talk about strays. 
So, <laughs> you involved, as you said, in Sherman's Gibbous Players program in 2018, where you developed strays. Can you talk a little bit about the play and the process of what the New World Players program was like and how you benefited from being involved in the scheme? Sure. So, I guess starting with the program, the the first time that we did it, um, and it was the first time that the Sherman had really done anything like that for a long time, um, there were 14 of us, a really good group of us actually, a good, great fun. Um, some, of the, some of the writers that I met that I still consider you know, good friends today. And, uh, but the, the structure was weird. Um, it was like, we did nine weeks being taught you know, taught how to write in, in air quotes there. Uh, and then we had to produce something at the end of it and they would read them all, uh, everybody that submitted, and they would select one play to win some money and, a, and a, I want to say it was a reading, but it might have been a production. I don't remember. Sure. But the, the second time, there were only six of us and it was a far more involved process. Uh, again, there were like classes about playwriting, but which were more like discussion groups. Okay. Um, and we would then ha uh, we'd produce a play, and they had a reading at the Sherman, and they had a reading at Theatre Five Hundred Three, where I later went on to be one of the Theatre Five Hundred Three Five Hundred Three Five, which I've just finished. Um, which is which is great. That that was that's another that's a different topic. Um, I haven't uh, got that in my questions, but I want to talk about that. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll, we'll come to it. We'll come to it. Um, so I uh, I wrote this play, Strays. As I said, the 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 real nugget of it was from my work with Kevin Elliott, and uh, it was it's a play about. Uh, at, at this point, I had just moved back to Porth Call. It was a play about coming home and interrogating the idea of coming home and what you do when you return somewhere but everything's changed. Um, and it's a three-hander. Uh, it opens with a, a kitchen that's been overtaken by a sand dune, um, which I still think is one of the best sets I've ever written. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and... We had, uh, we got uh, paired up with a director who was mm -hmm. one of the JMK directors okay. the when they had that scheme running. Um, and I was paired up with Jesse Britton, who was fab, and the only problem was that he couldn't do the readings. So I ended up working with Jackie Van Moore. And from that relationship, we struck up a friendship. And ever since then, it's like, uh, my and Jack, Jack is the first director that I would go to. Right. I think he's um, like totally exceptional. And with Chelsea, um, Chelsea Gillard yeah. doing Powderhouse, I absolutely love their work. Um, uh, but I really want to work on a, on a show of theirs. I I thought you know like shooting um, shooting rabbits was an exceptional. They did shooting. Oh, yeah. It wasn't finished, mind. I don't feel bad saying that because I, you know, Chelsea knows this. 
it wasn't finished and I would have loved to dramaturg it. Um, <laughs> it's right up my alley and uh, uh, you know maybe maybe in the future one day who knows. <laughs> But uh, yeah, uh, the the process of writing that play with the Sherman was great, and David Mikatali was um, the, mm. my, the main point of contact, um, and he was great as well. It's just a shame right at the end uh, of the process, the idea was to actually produce one of those plays or two of those plays in mm. the Sherman, and uh, uh, obviously Rachel left, and then David left. Yeah. and uh, everything just stopped and mm. to be honest that's a bit of a hallmark of my career is that I get tantalisingly close to a production and then something completely bizarre out, outside of my control comes in the way um, so if, if I'd never if, if I'd had that play produced I would never have done 5035 and because uh, you weren't allowed Right. You have to be emerging. Um, so, five three five was. It was meant to be. I think it was meant to be a year, eighteen months. Um, it ended up being just shy of two years because of the pandemic um, of a residency. Right. Um, we started in September of twenty nineteen, and we finished about a month or so ago right so um uh yeah so just shy of two years um and it's a national uh national internationally almost no nationally open um residency and they pick five uh writers who have got some experience but are looking to break through like the glass ceiling which is emerging yeah um and they run it every two years um and it was myself uh, and four other, of, honestly, some of the best people and the most talented writers that I have ever, it like, uh, we, we are very, very close. And um, they, they are yeah. so talented and so funny and so brilliant and so supportive. And um, basically the, the process of that was we, you have to pitch a play at the beginning when you when you're doing the whole interviewing thing before you even get on. You have to pitch an idea for a play. So is this a one page pitch without a script or is it? Yeah, without a, without a script. Um, and you, uh, if they want to do your play, essentially, and if they think that you've got the chops, then you get the gig and you spend the whole residency writing that play. Um, right. And you. Uh, they give you a seed commission and you meet different writers um, I'd met God I'd met so many people um, I met Timberlake Wurtenbaker I've met uh, I'm trying to th- I'm trying to think now or um, Jasmine Lee Jones Yasmin Jones um, David Hay wow um, <laughs> David Eldridge, uh, oh, so so many people, so mm. many people that I can't even. Roy Williams, um, some of the most like th- these are the names that you you grow up reading, and they're in front of me, 
and I'm having a conversation with them and asking them questions and Teresa Rococo like was there any uh, sense um, of imposter syndrome there did you feel a sense oh of... all the time <laughs> all the time and it felt so it felt really bonkers to have so, like a full theatre theatre 503 potentially the best uh, house in the in the yeah. entirety of, the, of Great Britain for writers in like n- making these crazy shows as, and, uh, in such a small space and they are uh, like my love for Steve Harper literary manager and Lisa Sperling artist director of that building is beyond bounds um, and everybody else like uh, in, in that building we have, they, have, they were so supportive and to have a whole institution saying to you no we want your play you need to write this play because we want to see it and, and to have constant dramaturgical support was mm. fantastic and uh, I've written my play um, it's called Tatquil um, it is absolutely the biggest play I've ever written. There's like a, there's like thirty odd characters in it. Um, is it's it set in, it's set in Bethesda? Uh, it's set from eighteen uh, something to twenty twenty one. It's this weird mythic. Uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, like twisting of rope play uh, all about uh, what does it mean for a community to come together and what does it mean for a community to fall apart mm. um, and trying to map that and it's all about inheritance and heritages and blood and, and oil and sweat mm. and noxious soils that are you, you can see what I mean infectious and yeah that's the COVID thing coming in. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's really good. Um, they, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say what's going to happen to it, um, but it, uh, put it this way, it's not going away anytime soon. So, um, well, yeah. let, let me know where and when I can see it. I will be because it's. I'm going to be absolutely over the moon when when, <laughs> when, that, when that starts happening. So uh, yeah. <laughs> they'd be great I, I loved it I loved 5 and uh, would encourage anybody they've already picked the next cohort so um, you can't go for this round but the next Damn. round in a couple of years um, <laughs> if you've not had a full professional production do it do it and get in touch with 503 because they love writers they love them and, you know the more Welsh writers that we can have dominating the scene the better because the English have had their time. We need to. We need to get rid of yeah. them. You know, oust them out. Definitely, I will. Uh, I'll be sending them an email straight after this podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I want to talk about your play Bear next. It's been developed as an audio drama with Owen Cultural Trust, which focuses on a couple who've lost a child. What kind yeah. of drew you to this theme? So, the play started um, 
I had, I was working with Luke Hereford, and he mentioned to me about a story um, out of Iceland where uh, a family took uh, a photograph, like a selfie with a dead polar bear. And he, he's like, wouldn't this make a great play? And I was like, oh, let me think about it and see what we can come up with. So um, I started developing it with him. And it, it very quickly became like an environmentalist play, but not in the kind of Duncan Macmillan way. Um, it was an environmentalist play that I, I like to write... Uh, I, have, I have a rule about writing is that no innocence, nobody comes off innocent in my plays. And I think it's really important. I think moral complexity is really important in theatre. Um, mm. Because I don't think that you can tell anybody anything. I think, as I said, I think theatre's inherently an impotent art form. And if, if anything, so much of society is about telling you how to live your life. I would much rather present alternatives that try and escape things that are talking to you all the time and uh, see how audiences react. That's far more what I'm interested in. I, there's a Tim Etchell's quote that I really like, which is, isn't the magic of live art that safe passage to the real world as it once was is no longer guaranteed? That's and I, really I, good. I, I try to live by that. Yeah. And... Um, that isn't quite verbatim, but it's, if you want to find it, it's in his book, Certain Fragments. And um, I'm, a, I'm a big Force Entertainment fan. Um, but I started writing this play with Luke, and uh, he was such a gracious reader. He would read anything, and like a lot of it was really bad. And I was reading a lot of Jon Fosser, the uh, Norwegian playwright. I think he's Norwegian. He's Norwegian or Swedish. I apologise if he's listening to this. And uh, I defended him. Uh, so uh, it was it, it was this play that was very dark and very icy, um, and through various developmental processes, it it, um, it was always about a missing child. But it was about how do you deal with such a loss? And I was mm. thinking as a kind of metaphor of you know the environment is is pretty buggered, to put it lightly. Yeah. And it's it's us and our kids that are gonna face that. Yeah. So, what is it to lose your future? Um, how do you begin to pull yourself together? Um. And just, I got the opportunity um, to work with a different director um, to take it to uh, the to take it to the fringe. Well, when the fringe was still thing um, and it was a hard it was a really hard conversation because I spent so much time developing it with Luke but we ended up in that area of trying to get Arts Council funding trying to get apartment building you know and it was it was really really hard and suddenly I ended up with somebody coming to me saying you can you know it's all funded I just need a script and I want to do bear because um, we, we did a show we did a show in at the Millennium Centre we had an R&D week at the Millennium Centre okay um, and so 
I had to do it. And it was, to this day, it's been one of the hardest conversations I've ever had to have with anybody. Um, because, you know, it was a case of career and it was a case of, I was just desperate to work. And I, at this point, I'd been writing the play for three years and it wasn't going anywhere. And I, I it's, it was hard, it was really hard. Um, so, uh, I talked to Luke about it, I talked to uh, Kerry Ann, who was producing for us, um, yeah. and decided that it was best for the life of the play that it went somewhere else. So, um, signed up for the Fringe, and we did. It, was, uh, it went on sale in the first round, and uh, it was really like, it was really exciting. It was really yeah. cool, and thinking like, whoa. Um, and then, uh, COVID hit. Yeah. <laughs> so, so no fringe. Uh, no, no fringe, which meant no show, which meant no, like, no nothing. So, what happened was through various different, like, co-occurrences of events, I, I ended up having the opportunity to turn it into an audio play mm. um, for our cultural trust which I did and I did some of the sound design for and did some of the editing for what was the um, adaptation process like um, it was mainly just trying to so the way that the play was it it was um, I've always been interested in cross-modal stuff so I've always been interested in like how does a play function if it like if it doesn't take something like character as its first point of call so for Bear, my, my kind of formal experimentation was how, how would this play feel, act and sound like if it took description, audio description specifically as its yeah. like first thing. So the play was already quite heavily audio described. It's just that those descriptions were happening on stage. So mm. um, it was relatively easy in that front to take in like some of the audio descriptions and just turning them into sound cues. Yeah. Um, I think I think there will always be, you know, I wasn't being paid enough to be honest to do a full rewrite. Okay. And um, uh, it's something that I wouldn't really sort of want to to do to a play for for not enough money if that makes any sense you know I, yeah. if I'm gonna be fully adapting I know it's my own work and I know it's never really seen the light of day in a full play version but also I wrote it as a stage play and um, that was your um, intention yeah exactly and that should be carried out to your intention your intention was not to write a radio play <laughs> yeah and so I ended up like it sounds, um, I mean, we had some really, really good feedback from the audio play, and um, it's, I don't know whether it's even still available, I'd have to, I'd have to check, but um, uh, people responded pretty well to it, so that's, that's something, and um, I, I really appreciate that, and just, I just love talking to people about plays, my own or otherwise, so it's always nice to hear when people enjoy them, or don't, I'm pretty thick-skinned, like, as I said, I've done some shit in my time. And I'm more than happy for people to slate my work 
the worst thing I think that anybody can say about oh. New York is that it's okay. Yeah. That is damning. Absolutely yeah. damning. It's like either tell me it's good or tell me it's absolutely terrible. I don't care yeah. which, just tell me something. Exactly. Yeah, it's fine. Oh, oh god. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh no. it's so bad. No. <laughs> so bad. So bad. Moving swiftly on. How many days you've um you've been an artist in residence at the World Centre for International Affairs? Yeah. What work have you undertaken during that time? So I was actually doing some sound design. I really love music. I really love making music. Um, it's not something that I um, tend to like put out there. I just sort of do it for my own fun. Yeah. Um, but I actually did a I did a sound installation for the month of November, and uh, it was all about uh, the hundred anniversary of, no, the 80th anniversary of the Temple of Peace and Health uh, in Cardiff. So um, I did a sound installation and took all various different um, things. I took instruments around Wales and recorded them um, like in, in sight and made this evolving sound piece. But I also got to do some commissioning and I commissioned two artists, um, a guy called Will I've forgotten his second name, and uh, Ness Owens, a poet from Anglesey, um, and uh, Will, I want to say Haywood. Um, he did walking, this, it's this incredible walking art where he, he invented new topographies for like physical locations. Uh, really, I think it's completely ahead of its time, and um, uh, that was fantastic and so I got to commission him and I got to commission Ness as well to write some poems and uh, we got to do all this stuff for uh, this amazing celebration of peacekeeping efforts and um, collective uh, coming together and uh, yeah, it was fab, I really enjoyed it and the team at the WCIA were again super supportive and just let me do whatever yeah. the hell I wanted and it was really freeing um, and uh, yeah some some clips of that are actually up on my website um, you can hear some of the sound files wow. um, and some of the stuff I didn't I didn't get a chance to listen to those when I was doing my research but I will definitely check them out yeah they're just, they're just audio files floating on like I think it's my scraps page or something like that they're, they're there. So have, have a poke around if you fancy. Can I just say, you're a very top website, like, so, like, so easy to research yeah. that you made it very easy for me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, we are coming to the end, but I have two more questions for you. So, another of your radio plays heritage focuses on Welshness, national identity, which we've kind of touched on briefly earlier. Yeah. What, what is your perspective on that as a Welsh learner from a largely monolingual area of Wales? Um, I, I love the Welsh language and almost I feel like I love it more because it didn't come to me 
as a first language it came to me as a second language mm. and I think the I think capitalism not to get you know <laughs> capitalism here we go <laughs> yeah I, I, I mean she's got many problems and one of them is that <laughs> the whole function of language it, it, under the guise of capitalism is as a kind of lubrication for trade yeah. and any any kind of barriers that seem to trade and to profit margin and to the drive for profit and profit motive is seen as negative and I love the fact that Welsh is so different to English that English being the, the yeah. bastard language of capital I love the fact that it is it's a it's, it's an act of resistance and language is far more than just communication language is heritage it's it's, it's histories it's uh, it's this complicated code of of like a historiolinguistic identity yeah. of, a, of a place more so than a people I would argue even though you know languages are spoken by people I think that language is actually far more of a of a, a almost like a geographical affair than it is a sociological affair um, do, so, do you say that with all languages even kind of international languages or does is that only the case with regionalised or nationalised languages like Welsh? I, yeah, I, I think I would. I think I would extend, because like, you know, really English isn't a real thing. English is a particular logic and a particular sound like set that appears regularly enough for it to be categorised as, as one whole language group. Yeah. But you look at, like, Northern English, you look at um, English spoken in Ghana, Nigerian English, um, people who yeah. learn English in, for example, uh, Chinese language speaking countries, they, the way that they use English is different. And um, there's a concept by, uh, that comes out of the writings of Gilles Deleuze, which is minor languages. Okay. And minor languages are where people who... Uh, lang languages come with a particular hegemony attached to them. Um, English being spoken by white people. When you have... Uh, that, I mean, for an example, you know, whether or not that's still the case now, I don't know, but... Um, uh, languages become minor when people who are subject to minority status use the language and turn it in on itself to express a minority position and they alter it, they change it, they, they turn it into a tool for themselves. And I think that's a really important, super, super vital concept for Welsh writers, particularly Welsh writers in English, to think about when we're thinking about okay what is the progression of Welsh theatre because mm. you're minoritizing yourself you are constantly becoming minor because you are not an English writer you're not 
writing well-written plays because they they are not plays that come up organically from your cultural aspect. Mm. They are plays that you are being imposed top down. They're the tracing of the path and not the map of the landscape. It's colonialism. It is. I, I think it is a form of colonialism. And I think that this major minor relationship occurs in so many other different guises and for so many other groups of people. Um, one of the five of three five, right? Benny Longbe, Benedict Longbe, her writing, um, she's uh, she's uh, of Congolese descent, and she's uh, I think she would call herself a Congolese writer. Uh, you'd have to check with her, but her plays are, are so incredibly beautiful, and she is actively turning the English language into. Um, a vehicle for, for her expression, something that feels true to her. Mm. And sh- it, so it doesn't read like an English play. It doesn't read like a well-formed play. Um, and another one, of um, Joel Tam. Joel, um, he's another guy on five or three, five. And his, uh, he's uh, from Singapore. And so he has this, uh, his work is Unbelievable! I'm so jealous of the boys. Oh, they, they, do you know they absolutely disgust me sometimes because they're they're just so talented and you just you know like one of them. Yeah, yeah, um, I know. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know. And Joel's Joel's way is of he's already immersed in this minoritized you know, English language, the Singlish, the Singapore English. But the way that, that he uses that in, in a British context to really undermine the majority status of well-made plays is, is exceptional. And I just think he's so talented. They're all, all four of them are so unbelievably talented and are doing stuff with British theatre that is so exciting that it's like it boggles my mind and that's my dream for Welsh writers and if I can get anything done in my life it's that people can see my work and hear how I talk about it and go yeah Yeah. do you know what I really want to do that I want to get involved with this minor language and because it's you know it's unique to every other person as well so that's the other thing it's like I just really love plays here. I really, really <laughs> yeah, so I can tell. Nice. <laughs> I can tell. It's so lovely to hear you talk about plays so passionately. And yeah, I, yeah, it's amazing to hear you talk about theatre and to have this conversation with you. Yeah, it's really <laughs> lovely afternoon, John. But uh, the last question I'm going to ask you before I let you go yeah. out into the world is what advice would you give? To someone who's just starting out in the industry? It's such a hard question um, because I'm, I think back to me, you know, sitting alone in my room or my living room in my house at university for ridiculous hours, you know, not not seeing anybody other than my housemates and thinking, what would I tell myself? Um, write what you want to write. 
don't let anybody tell you that there's a correct way of writing because there isn't. That would be my first thing. I would say the second thing is keep going. Mm. It is exceptionally hard. Yeah. It's a job for a reason and it is it is like cutting off a limb like three times a year to try and get a play finished. <laughs> and that's if you're really gunning for it. You know, I, I consider myself somewhat of an industrial writer and I think if I can finish three plays in a year, I've had an exceptionally good year. And some of those plays will literally never see the light of day. They will never but get produced. By finish, what do you mean? Get to a point where I feel like I'm communicating the question that I want to communicate as effectively as I feel like I can at that moment. I, I'm, I, I also know the third thing I would say is you will never feel like you are finished. <laughs> because necessarily, right, plays... Necessarily, plays are texts, uh, like they're static artifacts yeah. until they're performed. But your primary primary relationship is it with it as a text. But you're not a text. You're a person. You're a human being who grows and changes and adapts and becomes something every single day, every single moment in your life. You are in flux with everything that's around you and so you as soon as you put that final stop that final mark on your play you are no longer the same person so you will you'll always be able to bring something or feel like you can bring something new to it and my advice would be just become comfortable with that feeling of never being finished because you never will be and if the, you know, the truth of the matter is you won't be finished in anything in life ever so, yeah. <laughs> you know, chill out a bit, chill out. Um, and yeah. my fourth and final piece of advice is be kind to yourself because writing can be a very, very lonely job. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't like to tell people how they should write. I don't think that that's, you know, morally, I just don't think that makes sense. It doesn't make sense to me. And for some people, writing is about experiencing the world and, and experience the world uh, through a theatrical lens. And some people, it's experience the world outside of the theatre. Yeah. My lens is a philosophical one, so you know that's that's how I come to it. And I, there's a there's a moment of translation that's happening all the time between philosophical ideas and the stories that I'm trying to tell, and a synthesis that happens on stage, hopefully at least. But you will never ever be a successful writer if you hate yourself at the end of it. Yeah. You have to you have to look after yourself because if you don't look after yourself, the play will not get written. It is not the play comes from you. 
it enters into a relationship with you and so you have to be there as much as it has to be there and this industry is toxic and some of the people that you meet you'll want to throttle but if you are kind to yourself then you should be okay and that's something that I have to tell myself even now and uh, I don't think that I'll ever learn it I don't think that I'll ever get there I think it's a constant process you know particularly for people like me with anxiety and yeah. Uh, all, all that sort of stuff. You, you know, writing is a, is a gift. Yeah. It really, really is. And it deserves your respect and it deserves your love. But that sh- it shouldn't be a toxic relationship. It shouldn't be at your own detriment. Yeah. I just don't buy into that. I don't want to see... To look, bra- to look back, right? Sarah Kane, my one true love as a playwright, um, she had a very tragic ending. Yeah. She had a very tragic yeah. ending. And I don't buy into some of the self-care stuff, you know. I think that some people it works for and some people it doesn't. And I'm not here to judge people on that. But Sarah's work is so exceptional but it paid such a cost. And, you know, (laughs) I would much rather a world where she was still around, and I would much rather a world where we still have writers who still want to write. And that that sounds, it sounds really twee and really gross, but I really do mean it. Uh, I know it's a sin to be sincere and earnest, uh, in, in any kind of public you've public just done it you've just done it it's too late for that now <laughs> but thank you so much for your time it's been really nice yeah. to catch up as well oh, thank, thank you, you. Kieran. thank you very much for having me it's been so lovely to talk to you that's just about it for this episode of the Emotional um, but I think Alistair Eklund is on the next episode Oh, who we were talking about earlier, I'll have to chase her up oh, on that. My, oh, my, another one of my loves. I love Alice. I think she's, she's bad. bad. I, think, I think she's going to eat the entire world whole, and I think she <laughs> deserves it. She all Absolutely. Um, but no. for now, it's goodbye from me, and goodbye from John. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.